Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So today's guest comes to us all the way from Paris. I'm very excited. Uh, born in Mexico City to a Mexican mother and a French father, Nadia Albertini has been embroidering ever since her grandmother began teaching her at the age of just six years old. And now, just only 33 years old, Nadia has been embroidering for over 27 years. And since graduating from the Paris's École du Paris, has been working quite successfully as an embroidery designer. And quite successfully might be a little bit of an understatement, Cass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because she has designed embroidery for some of today's most recognizable names in fashion, including Chloe, Chanel, Givenchy, Jason Wu, Dries Van Noten. I mean, we could just kind of go on and on and on <laughs> if we wanted to. And in addition to being this sought-after embroidery designer, Nadia is also an archivist and historian of the craft. And today, in part one of our two-part episode on the art of embroidery, Nadia takes us back in history to explore the evolution of one of mankind's oldest decorative art forms. Nadia, welcome to the show. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for inviting me to your wonderful podcast. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. And I, I do have to say that it's a bit of a sad day in Paris today. Yesterday, Notre Dame caught fire, um, although I think the fire is now out, correct? Yes, it is out. Um, they finish about with this at 3 a.m. in the morning. They worked for very long hours. And we have to thank our firefighters here who are exceptionally talented and committed to the task. And they have shown this many, many times before. Um, and what happened yesterday was very sad, but I think it also is about realizing how lucky we are for having these amazing monuments all around town that sometimes we take for granted. And this church, this cathedral has existed for the past 800 years. And yesterday they were talking about how long it's gonna take to rebuild the church, they said probably 30 years, which if we think in the globality of its, its existence, it's not much. So we need to think um, on a positive way and, and say that, yeah, now it's time to rebuild it. Yeah. And so for those of, of, of the dress listeners who might not know, like you said, the cathedral was built in um, 1160 and it's considered one of the finest examples of French Gothic architecture. But really, it's also the staple of French pride and culture, right? And it's one of the most recognized symbols of France the world over. So our hearts really go out to France today. Uh, but this also, I think, actually segues into our topic because France has so many of these incredibly rich traditions that uh, still really operate uh, and exist today. And they go back thousands of years. And one of those traditions is this art of embroidery. And as a technique, but also as a decorative art form for textiles, embroidery has been around for thousands of years. You yourself are an embroiderer, and we are going to hear 
all about that in next week's episode. I'm very excited to uh, to hear more about that. But you're also an historian of the craft, and I'm hoping you can tell us a bit more about the origins of embroidery. Yes, um, exactly. Well, embroidery is one of the oldest crafts, in my opinion, and uh, maybe we need to define what embroidery is because there's a little bit of confusion between what is embroidery, what is weaving, what is tapestry. Funny enough, I have this book that is um, wonderful called um, Embroiderers, Medieval Craftsmen, and they show uh, weavers in the cover. It's not, it's not embroidery. So I think we need to be careful about this. Embroidery is the art of decorating fabric or any other material such as leather or paper, because we can also do embroidery on those with the use of a needle and thread. And of course, with that needle and that thread, we can attach other materials like beads, wire, shells, crystals, so it's any type of decoration, abstract or ornamental that is done with needle and thread. So this technique is extremely old. And yeah, as I said, it's probably one of the oldest arts present in human history since prehistoric times. One of the oldest embroidery traces is found, was found in Siberia and dates back from 5,000 to 6,000 years before Christ. So. Wow. That's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing how that could be found because, as we know, fibers, yarn, fabrics, they don't live well with time. So probably this was a trace um, that was embedded on a, a rock and kind of makes us believe this. And so shells, the trace of shells were attached to an animal skin with the use of yarn. So that was probably the most basic thing, but they started with that. That's so interesting. And and the fact, like you said, that these things still survive is really fascinating and wonderful for us to be able to observe them today. But can you talk about how embroidery specifically developed into an art form in France? So, you know, a technique that's really honed by this highly skilled artisan, you know, a really good place to start is probably its religious associations. Yes, it is. Well, the oldest needle known today uh, dates back from 1500 before Christ, and that was found in a cave in, in France. Um, so I think that says a lot. Yeah, with time, um, obviously, Egypt and Rome, the Roman Empire, both cultures were super important in the terms of fabric development, textile development, and with it came embroidery. The oldest, probably the oldest swatch that we know of embroidery as we see it today comes from Egypt, and it's back from the fifth century before our era. So after this, it developed into a sacred art in the Middle Ages with the church. Because back in the day, and even now, embroidery is a very time-consuming and very expensive technique. So only really wealthy people could afford this. And back in the day, it was the church. So they used to illustrate biblical stories, images of God, images of yeah, the Bible, some, some of these stories into clerical objects such as probably clothes for the priests or just decorations for the churches and the altars. So um, it was already uh, decorated with gold, silver threadwork, combined with pearls and uh, sometimes even other precious stones. 
And because it was sacred, uh, it was preserved really, really well from vandalism during wars or other crises, religious conflicts. So we can still see a lot of these precious pieces in museums, in the V&A, even here in France, in the Musée de Cluny. It's in Saint-Germain. So, yeah, and other cathedrals around France, Italy, Spain, um, and England. Yeah, I have to say uh, that the Heavenly Bodies, Met's Heavenly Bodies exhibition uh, from last year had these incredible pieces on view from the Vatican. And there were these chasubles that I... It literally is the most incredible amount of craftsmanship that I've ever witnessed because it was yes, under glass and you months could get and up. months. Oh my goodness. I think there's a couple that were so beautiful. They had these like tiny, tiny little people with faces. And I think it took 15 women, something like 16 years to hand embroider it. I mean, it's spectacular the amount of work that goes into it. And there were treaties um, about this, about how uh, human skin should be represented with yarn. There were very serious studies uh, and very serious laws that determined how it had to be embroidered. At the beginning, they were using, I would say, white silk yarns. And a treaty in Paris said that, no, there had to be shades. So they had to use four different shades for to show the natural color of the skin. Wow. And we're talking, I'm talking about like an inch, inch and a half high figures. <laughs> yes, exactly. Super <laughs> tiny. And then sometimes, I mean, there's entire walls covered with this sort of technique. So it's, uh, it's quite amazing. Byzantine objects and decorations from the 10th century are also wonderful and are an incredible source of inspiration even nowadays. And we have to mention how important was the work of uh, monasteries and, and the work of the nuns, uh, for example, like in San Gall in Switzerland. They're still making a lot of laces, even, well, now it's by machine, but it's a hub of, uh, and it has been for centuries. Something very important also to mention is the tapisserie de Bayeux, the Bayeux tapestry, which is, it's not a tapestry, it is an embroidery. <laughs> Common misconception. <laughs> yeah, misconception. And um, we have to analyze the, the name of it. So it's called a tapestry probably because it's very long and people didn't expect this to be an embroidery. And because it's a, sort of like a wall hanging, they thought it was probably woven, but it's not. It's embroidered. And why Bayeux is a, is a city in France, it's a, it's a little town in France, uh, that gives its name to a type of stitch that is used to fill areas with yarn, colored yarn, um, to cover certain spaces. But this embroidery and these panels were not made in France. They were made, they were commissioned by uh, Queen Matilda, who was the Duke of uh, Normandy's wife during his conquest of Normandy. So she commissioned this from St. Augustine's Abbey in Contemporary, and it took them seven years to embroider this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something like over 200 feet long or something. I'm not very familiar with uh, feet, but it's 69 meters, yes. Oh, wow, yeah. So that's about 230 feet or something like that, to that effect. Yeah, it's, it, it's a lot. It's long. It's a lot. <laughs> and it's divided in nine different panels. Um, wow. They use very different stitches, stem stitch, couching stitch, chain stitch, among many others. And these yarns, it's, these wool yarns, were dyed with natural yarn, uh, dyes, which even today, we can still see the color. So imagine the exceptional quality of this. 
And it's on display, is it not? Can you not go and see it in Normandy? It is, yes. It's in display. I guess they don't show it all at the same time for conservation purposes, but yeah, it is. So and any dress listeners who are in Normandy, send us photographs of your bio-tapestry experience. Um, so the Catholic Church was not the only entity responsible for the patronage and development of this craft as an art form, although they were certainly really instrumental, but so too were royal families and wealthy families. So can you tell us a little bit more about these royal patrons and, and, and why they were important to the development of embroidery? Yes, in Italy and England and France, they were royal families were one of the biggest sponsors. For example, François Ier, uh, Francis I, ordered uh, the artist Raphael to design some embroidered panels for his rooms, so and and his chambers. So that was already so important to to notice how artists, designers were working as in collaboration with the embroidery workshops on this for the kings and the royal families from the 13th and 14th centuries, these workers were organized, their work and their daily tasks were organized with corporations. And this was uh, mainly done to please the king because they thought it was otherwise very messy and they need to put order because they wanted to commission them with wall hangings, clothes, so they need to get them in order in order for them to work. So um, the all this legislation or document that talks about these corporations is from the 13th century, probably 1260, 1270. And it says that the king's embroiderers were allowed to borrow any worker anytime with no notice from the other masters whenever they needed them, because the, the king's work uh, was priority one, obviously. This large group of artisans or corporations were directed by four old masters in France who were directing the styles, the colors, the techniques, how it is that they needed to work. The embroidery work uh, was only done with natural light and not at night. So that was pretty difficult because there were hours and hours of embroidery to be done. And during winter here, we don't have much sunlight. So, yeah, the days were pretty short, the, the working days. And they also ruled on how internships or apprenticeships worked. One apprenti, that's the word in French, had to work at least eight years for his training. And each embroidery master could only have one apprenti, one apprentice. So, it shows how elitist this was, how special, because you couldn't, you couldn't train many people at the time. So, yeah, it was quite special as a job. And you said he. Was it just men that were doing the embroidery during this period? Mostly, yes. There are stories, uh, but these need to be confirmed, about couples working together. Uh, the wife would do the design and sometimes the husband would do the embroidery or the opposite, but it was mainly, yeah, a masculine craft. And so skipping ahead a bit into the future, we come across Louis XIV, who of course is famously known for his love of luxury, but also his support and patronage of really any number of art forms throughout his reign, including embroidery. So can you tell us a little bit about the role that the Sun King played in making embroidery a luxury to be coveted, collected, admired, 
And then really how this continued under the reign of Louis XV and Louis XVI. Yes, well, we have to first talk about Catherine and Marie de Médicis, who were both Italian but became queens of France. They loved embroidery, and uh, during the Renaissance, Italians were really the masters of embroidery and everything textile-related. So they brought to France and to the French courts this idea of luxury, of refinement, and of techniques So they really initiated this, and apparently Catherine de Médicis was a very good embroiderer herself. So they initiated this, and obviously a few years later, uh, Louis XIV really loved embroidery, and everything around him was embroidered in Versailles. The Gobelin is the weaving factory, I would say, and in combination with their work, there were many, many other embroidery workshops who would supply these embroidered fabrics for walls, for chairs, for murals, for seats, sofas, a lot organized around the floral and decorative ornaments that we know today in Versailles, and they're so clearly identified with the king, like La Fleur de Lys, some roses, the gardens, it's pretty impressive. And um, there's this story telling that Louis XIV in the Galerie des Glaces with all these mirrors and all this gold, he wanted to have caryatid figures of, it was 15 feet high approximately, all made in gold embroidery. So it's, it's quite impressive to think of those techniques employed and used on those dimensions. And the king himself had a team or four, four to five embroiderers working exclusively for him and for his personal attire in Versailles. And when you say gold embroidery, you're talking about gold wrapped thread. So it's literally gold embroidery? Yes, it's gold wrapped <laughs> thread and gold sequence, you know, wow. like gold, um, gold sheets that were punched and covered. Um, yeah, they would make sequence out of it and and tassels and they would cover embroidery uh, with that they would use it for that and um, another very important figure during those times was madame de maintenon who was a royal mistress so by dating louis the 14th she also initiated him to all this um the craft and she created a college in saint-cyr that is not too far from paris uh, for aristocrat girls to learn the craft and produce more embellishments for the palaces. So yeah, the whole the whole family was working towards that goal. Wow. And I have to say, I do love seeing the the surviving garments from this period. They're so incredibly beautiful. But I also really love in collections when you can see the flat embroidered panel like of a vest before it was made into a garment because they would have done the embroidery almost like on a pattern piece. And then I don't know if it was commissioned or sold separately, but uh, it's really incredible to see that as a flat textile and to kind of imagine them making it. Yeah, the 18th century has incredible examples of, um, yeah, the vests. And it's funny to notice how 
the style evolves very quickly, you know, like the shape, sometimes it's um, at the beginning it's very curved uh, around the hips and then it gets more straight and shorter. The Palais Alliera in Paris has an incredible collection of this vest or like half of the vest. And they not only have the actual fabric embroidered vests, but they also have uh, the patterns and the sketches that were used to create these pieces. So sometimes it's funny to match the original drawing and the actual piece made. So yeah, that's really cool. I love making those connections. It's so fun and and fulfilling, satisfying, I should say, when you can put that original, um, like you said, pattern piece with its creation. How wonderful. Because what's very important in embroidery, obviously, are the techniques and the gold and the threads and the yarns and everything that we can put into it. But embroidery really starts with the sketch and the drawing. And there is a treaty from 1770 wrote by uh, Charles Germain de Saint-Aubin, kind of like a crazy French name, but um, called L'Art du Brodeur, The Art of the Embroiderer. And it's a book, it's a treaty, it's really like a manual that we can still learn a lot from, to, yeah, even today. He says that it's, the embroidery is the art of adding representation of motifs, either flat or in um, 3D, in gold and silver to the surface of a finished piece of cloth. But more than that, he really explains how drawing is the base of all embroidery and it determines the forms, the distribution, the harmony, the proportions. So yes, sometimes we forget that behind the technique, behind the materials, there is a line of drawing and a composition. And I think that's super important to point out. So would the artist who drew the design, would they have been different than the person who embroidered it? Yes, completely. And it's still the case today. You don't design embroidery and embroider the same thing. Yeah, it's two completely separate jobs. They com- they complete each other, but I think the, the, that barrier is getting less and less rigid in a way. But even in the ateliers today, yes, some are artists, we call them artists or drawers, and the others are really embroiderers. It's not the same uh, family, let's say. (laughs) Interesting. So, you know, we talked a bit about Marie Antoinette and uh, the reign of Louis XVI, uh, when really, I mean, that that era is just really synonymous with luxury and decadence and elegance, the utmost display. Uh, But, you know, the French Revolution comes, as we all are aware, and it really played a role in the decline of the technique. And I think we're going to hear a little bit more about that after a brief sponsor break. Welcome back, dress listeners. So, Nadia, I'm hoping you can tell us what role the French Revolution played in the decline of the embroidery technique and then how embroidery was revived. Well, um, revolution means uh, no king and obviously no royal family. And thus, it implies no more commissions or orders from these royal families. So all this progress, all this research, all this creativity and and movement that had started with Louis XIV, even Catherine de Medicis before, it kind of all stopped at once. And that was a very tough, uh, very rough times for the embroiders and for all the craft, for all the luxury in France, because they didn't, they didn't have people to work for anymore. And 
the, the revolution was a new political and economic situation in the country. So it was a, it created a major crisis for the workers. Everything shifted in their lives, really. But more than just a crisis or a period of not work, it was more than that. The destruction is really hard to describe. And I think for people who are interested in conservation, like I am, or even, you know, just listeners in general, people who appreciate the craft, um, Sometimes it's unbelievable the extent of, yeah, destruction that the revolution brought in. Nothing from the past should remain. That was their, really the idea behind this. Um, no designs, no luxury. So there were groups of women who were hired or would gather in their homes um, to parfiler, it's the word in, in French, which means drizzle in a way, uh, remove uh, all the gold and other metallic yarns, other precious stones, precious materials, and unravel them from existing embroideries, tapestries, anything really. They will like just tear them apart and keep the gold aside for something else, for other purposes. So yeah, they really removed all the luxury and, and okay, it's the idea behind a revolution, but yeah, I think that this, the destruction and the uh, how we we went against this is is really hard to to imagine nowadays, and um, we will have to wait until eighteen around eighteen fifty, during the Second Empire uh, with Napoleon III, to really see luxury come back uh, and craft. So this means, yeah, sixty years later. So there was a huge gap where um, all this craft were kind of uh, dormant in a way. Did Napoleon not embroider his garments at all? I would think that he would have been a little excessive in that. <laughs> a, a little, he did. But um, the the whole idea and industry, yeah, took a, took a blow during those those times. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting when you put it in context too, because yes, you're, you're destroying the luxury, quote unquote, luxury and excess of these wealthy elite, but you're also destroying the work of these working class artisans. I mean, this artwork exactly. essentially is just being destroyed. So kind of horrific to think about, but um, like you said, it was revived in the mid 19th century. And I'm hoping you can actually talk a little bit about the major inventions that really helped to revolutionize embroidery in the 19th century. Yes, there were mainly two major things that happened. Um, so during um, during the revolution and after, the region of Lorraine, that is in the east of France, not far from the German border, uh, had always been a very industrious and very resource, resourceful region. A lot of uh, industries, textiles, manufacturers settled there um, way before. And in the late 18th century and 19th century, a large group of embroiderers coming from Paris settled there, also following King Stanislas I, who settled in the area. And they thought they would probably, by getting closer to this uh, nobleman, important figure, they could get orders from, from him. So they settled around there, especially in a town called Lunéville. And they started working uh, again. So inspired by the Indian and the Chinese uh, crochet, uh, the embroidery hook, that was brought in by the Armenian 
people uh, through Marseille. They were trading on um, Indian fabrics and a lot of other things. And I guess that it's not really clear what happened, but I guess that among those piles of fabrics and, and folded saris, maybe, there was this Indian hook that, uh, or other needle, a tool that came in to Marseille and went up its way to Lorraine in the northeast of France. And they started using it, but they probably no one really explained how to use this thing because in India, we do embroidery face up. And in France, we do it face down. You don't really see what you're working with. Like you have to do a chain stitch using the crochet, using the tool through the tool, but you're not really, yeah, you're not really seeing your your work. So it's much more difficult. And I wonder what happened there. There was really no one <laughs> to teach them or tell them what to do. <laughs> so um, yes, in Lunaville, they started working with this hook and um, it's a very useful and very quick technique because it's, you can decorate a tool with a delicate chain stitch and it's very quick, it's very fast, the work is delicate, it's much more precise. And uh, yeah, there was a, a huge uh, difference other than the needle. And in 1865, Monsieur Ferry, who was also the, the mayor of the city, he started using beads and sequins with this chain stitch. So it created the Lunéville embroidery that is used today for haute couture. So it started there. I mean, it's it's not that old if you think about it. It's not even 200 years old. So it's it's fascinating. It certainly is. And now that you've mentioned haute couture, it is, we are talking about the 19th century, and I would love to turn our attention to the haute couture industry, which emerges during this period. And on more than one occasion, Andres, we, we really have referenced the various ateliers, atelier essentially meaning workshop in uh, French. And these are an indispensable part of the haute couture industry. They're staffed by a team of highly skilled craftsmen and women who are really largely responsible for putting what I would say the luxe and luxury haute couture fashion. So the lace, flower, and jewelry makers, the leather and feather workers, the weavers, and my personal favorite is the pleaters. Of course, the embroiderers, so many wonderful, skilled artisans and beautiful work being produced in these ateliers. And one of the most renowned embroidery ateliers is Maison Lesage, and it was founded in 1924. So can you tell us why Lesage is so well regarded? Yes, of course. Um, I want to point out that there are many, many other embroidery houses, embroidery ateliers and workshops, as you say. It's just that Lesage is probably the, the name that we associate the most. When, we, when someone mentions French embroidery, French haute couture embroidery, the first we think of is Lesage. But, and it's not to undermine or um, say that he's not good. It's not that. It's just that we need to also pay attention to all the other many people who do this sort of work and who are less known. So Maison Lesage started in 1924. Well, it was created by um, Albert Lesage, who was uh, François Lesage's father, and he bought La Maison Michonnet, who was another embroidery house created in 1868. Um, so they bought the house, they bought the archive, the material, the stock, the place, the workers. They hire all their old workers and starting a new venture with his wife, who was um, 
Madame Lesage, also whose nickname was Yo Lesage. And she worked for Michonnet and then for Vionnet working on their embroidery orders. So she had a lot of knowledge of all the de design part, all the haute couture, how it happens in the studios, how it happens from the inside. So she had all this insider's knowledge that she turned into a profit for their new business. So Lesage is very closely linked to Vionnet till 39 when they close, and then Schiaparelli during those years before the war. And when François Lesage took over in 1948, um, he brought with him a much younger and much modern way of doing business that he actually learned in the US when he was working in Hollywood. So he was um, a little bit more liberated, uh, more modern, uh, more proactive. And he, most of all, loved the media and loved the press. And he had such a huge charisma. And he really talked about his craft, about the work, about his collaborations with the designers. So I think that kind of explains a little bit that we think Lesage when we think French embroidery. But even during those, that period, the 40s, 50s, 60s, there were many other ateliers, like l'Atelier Vermont, who um, they already, they, they exist, they still st exist today. They were recently bought by um, LVMH for Dior. Um, I can think of many other places that used to embroider for Dior, for Saint Laurent, that probably no longer exist today, like Lanel. Lanel was bought by Chanel a few years ago and integrated into the Lesage team, but they were a completely different, um, they had a completely different style. They were younger, more, more vibrant colors, more experimentation. So yeah, there were probably maybe 10 to 15 very interesting ateliers during that time. Yeah, so like you said, Lesage is might be the most famous of these ateliers, but it was far from being the only one, and it was not necessarily the most important. We're going to take a quick sponsor break. When we get back, you're going to tell us about one of these other Parisian embroiderers. More in a minute. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? 
because you can by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Nadia, please tell us about the Parisian embroiderer René Beguet. Yes, so um, René Beguet is kind of a mystery. His atelier was called Rebe, so the joining of his uh, first name and family name. Well, I came across uh, Rebe three years ago by pure chance. It was probably was meant to be, but I wasn't really exactly looking for that. And I've been working on this research for the past uh, three years, writing this book that is going to be out um, at the end of this year. Um, and hopefully we can maybe do an exhibition in a few in a few years um, if all goes well. Yeah, congratulations. Um, I think you said you just finished your manuscript. Yes, I did. <laughs> 120 pages. And now I need to figure the pictures. <laughs> Yeah, so um, René Beguet started working in 1907 for Paquin as a designer in London, then moved back to Paris to open his own embroidery house in 1911. So it's fascinating because he works from 1911 to 1967, more than 50 years of work for three very different generations of designers. He started working for Paquin, Worth, a little bit for Vionnet, a lot for, yeah, during all the the 20s, very beaded dresses, quite, quite impressive. And then during the 30s and 40s, obviously before the war, he worked a little bit for Schiaparelli, he worked a little bit for Maggie Rouf, And then after the war is a major, major change for him because he becomes Dior's favorite embroiderer. For really 10 years, he worked extensively for Christian Dior. They did together more than 250 styles, uh, sometimes completely covered with embellishment. And then he went on working for Saint Laurent, Givenchy, Roger Vivier, he did all the beautiful, magnificent Cinderella-style shoes that we know from Roger Vivier, the one embroidered, were all embroidered by René Beguet. Wow. So it's uh, he's a fascinating and, and yet uh, forgotten uh, character. And why do you think that is? Because he just wasn't a larger-than-life character like Lesage was? He wasn't as media-savvy, perhaps? Well, he was a uh, pretty major, and his wife, uh, who was his main muse and, and really right hand, she did a lot for the atelier. She was actually, I think that um, deep down, I think she was a creative person in the couple. He was very good for business and 
public relations. He would go to the designers and show the work. But she was really the one creating everything in, in, the, in the shadows. And um, the thing is, they consider themselves different from the, the rest of the suppliers. They were not really mingle uh, with the others. They were very private. They didn't like the press. They didn't talk about their work. Uh, they were very passionate about it, but they didn't really share uh, until really, really late and at the point when it was too late, um, by the mid-60s. Um, so they really didn't capitalize on on that um, success that Dior brought to them to become more public. They were very, very private. They were in the center of Paris, but uh, really no one knew about them unless they were really good clients of them. And um, what the embroiderer, the embroidery ladies tell me, because I, I was able to find nine people, eight embroiderers and one designer who worked for him and for his wife during the 50s and 60s. They tell me that if Madame Beguet hadn't died so young, she died when she was 62 in 67 of a very sudden cancer, they would probably still be open today. They would have continued working. Wow. So they were really loyal to the Begay vision then, in a sense. Yes. And then she she was exceptionally talented and she would have had the, the strength and the creativity to bring Rebe to the 20th century, 21st century. But sadly, she, she died really young. And uh, when she passed away, his, her husband was already pretty old. He was 82. And so he decided to close the atelier. She died um, on December 22nd, something, and, and he closed on December 31st. So a week later, he decided, I'm done. It's over. Sounds like she was really the heart of that business. Too. Yes, uh, it, it's heartbreaking. But uh, I think the legacy they they have left, um, obviously, all the beautiful Dior's pieces like Junon and May. But there's also many, many others that we don't know about and that I've been uh, discovering. Because um, he was smart enough to give his archive to four different museums in France and Spain. And everything was kind of like split and safely kind of preservated from all this, all the time and, and conditions. So it's there in the museums and they had never been studied or, or touched. So I've been um, photographing them for the past two years and studying them and really making the links between uh, the archives and the embroidery in, in the fashion houses and these embroideries. And it's fascinating the amount of things that they did well, we are all very excited to see your book. So you'll have to let us know when it comes out so we can let people, direct people where to buy it. Thank you. And so you are actually currently in charge of the archive for Maison Urel, which was founded in 1870. So please tell us about one of the oldest embroidery houses in France. Well, I think it is the oldest. It's oh. really the oldest. Wow. Uh, it's five, five generations uh, in the same family. Well, they, they have kind of shifted between cousins and, and, and the uncle and the cousin again. But um, yeah, Monsieur Martin Urel is the current owner and manager of the atelier, and he is the fifth generation. And what's really fascinating about this is that it's kind of a, a mix between the stories of Le Sage 
Rebe, because they started in 1870 with the same family. They have been through a lot, a lot of different periods, a lot of different styles of embroideries, styles that have shifted from like lace and very long dresses to minimal to more modern to yeah their archive is fascinating it's more than 30,000 embroidery samples and what we're trying to do is right now um, really digitize all this put it all in order because they're still working today they're still suppliers to the haute couture so we need to make this functional for them to uh, be able to reference all these archives without damaging them because they're used on a daily basis. If, let's say, someone from Valentino comes to the atelier and says, okay, I want to see red flowers on lace, I need to come up with a system that searches through the 30,000 archives in a smart way, saying florals, red, lace. So, yeah, we're in that process where... Um, we're creating this tool. And are, is everything cataloged? How is it? Because you said it's a working archive, essentially. So are you in the process of cataloging it all and photographing it? How is it, I guess, organized? I'm trying to picture. Yes. Well, it's um, it's everything in very tidy and clean boxes. But uh, because they create uh, new swatches almost every day, I have to keep track of all these things happening and obviously we need to, there are some um, archives that are very, very fragile that we cannot really manipulate or even photograph. So we have to be very careful about that. And the idea right now is that, yeah, it, they're being photographed, but we also need to come with the right words in order to make this easy to navigate on a daily basis for Someone who is, for example, not me, that doesn't necessarily know the words, I have to make it easier for them to search through this. It's a very interesting project that it's probably going to take us 20 years, but it doesn't matter if we have time. <laughs> um, and the fascinating part about this is that I'm working with someone who has this heritage with him and who is passionate about the, the history of uh, their work and their family and what they did. And there's a lot of respect and a lot of passion about this. And I think that's what's the most, yeah, that's the most fascinating thing for me. And also I get to see uh, all these beautiful things every week. I think my favorite period is 1910, I would say. It's really, really beautiful. Yes, I am quite uh, partial to that era myself. So I mean, it's so, it must be so inspiring too, because you yourself are an embroiderer, you are a designer, you actually have your own atelier in Paris with um, your business partner. And we're going to hear so much more about the contemporary art form of embroidery next week. Thank you so much for sharing this history with us today. Thank you. Nadia, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think this episode is particularly apt, cast considering how immensely popular embroidery has seemed to have become in the most recent years. It really has been revived in the past few years as this at-home hobby. And what is so great about it is just how accessible a hobby it is. I mean, really anyone can pick up one of the many starter kits available on Etsy or at your local Michaels, and you can just start embroidering. It's really wonderful. I know I follow at least five or six different embroideries on Instagram, and they have hundreds of thousands of followers. 
That's right. Um, and actually, we just got a message today from our friend, Alexis Walker, who's been on the show, who does Fools and Mortals, which is her company where she does embroidery and sells it on Etsy. And she just sent us a, hey, shout out, thinking of you girls earlier today. Oh, yeah. Her stuff is incredible. So definitely check it out. Yes. This now leads us, cast into next week's episode. Uh, we would be remiss not to discuss contemporary embroidery with Nadia, who is herself immersed in the field as an embroiderer, but also as an owner of her own embroidery atelier. That's right. Next week, Nadia returns to tell us all about her Parisian embroidery studio. So be sure and tune in next week and learn all about how Nadia and her contemporary counterparts are keeping the embroidery art form alive and well today. That does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the decorative art form of embroidery next time you get dressed. And remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. April and I love hearing from you. And if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct messages on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And a lot of you message us about additional readings and recommended readings. So just remember that each week we post them on our website at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dress. That's tee forward slash dress. As always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.